vegetables, especially greens, those dark green leafy and the cruciferous ones, have a compound in them called thylakoids that actually fight cravings for sugar. They turn off the hunger switch. And so the more vegetables you eat, that is how you fight sugar addiction and food addiction is by eating as many vegetables as you can flood your system with. That's why I don't like these weighing and measuring programs because they tell people to eat seven ounces of vegetables. No, eat two pounds of vegetables because those thylakoids, which you can't get in pill form, just they do something to your brain that just makes you not crave sugar. So when I say I eat a little small square of a dessert now, that's after eating a huge salad with a pound of vegetables in it. You know what I'm saying? I don't. I would never eat something like that on an empty stomach or first. I don't even eat fruit first. Fruit, anything sweet is the treat. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Feeling Full podcast. I'm Mordechai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades. But since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and have kept it off. Join me and my guest today to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease without dieting or intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, then this show is for you. Today, our guest is Chef AJ. Chef AJ is a vegan chef, motivational speaker, teacher, and author of three great books. Growing up as the fat kid, Chef AJ struggled for over four decades with her weight. In today's show, you're going to hear how Chef AJ lost 50 pounds in her 50s and for the first time in her life has been able to maintain her weight for over eight years. We dive deep into food addiction sugar addiction, how to navigate complex environments, and how to prepare for long-term weight loss. Chef AJ shares tips on how you can navigate your social life with more confidence and ease. We talk about the benefits of being prepared for the unknown and what she's gained from eating a whole foods plant-based diet. Thanks for joining and let's jump right in. All right. Well, welcome everybody to today's episode. Today we have a very special guest, Chef AJ with us. I interviewed her for the Reclaim Your Body Summit about a year and a half ago now. Is that right? I think so. Chef AJ, you don't actually know this, but out of all the interviews, you were actually the third to top rated interview that we had. So I'm just super excited to have you back. So take me back where, where it all started. If I saw you, you know, when you were six or seven, you're sitting around your dinner table growing up. What am I, what am I looking at? You're looking at a fat kid, unfortunately. You know, I, you know, I say that lovingly, guys. I, I wish I could go back and talk to her and say, yeah, you know what? It's going to be okay one day. But, you know, it is acceptable now. A lot of people, that word fat is charged with people. But I understand I was the fat kid. In 1960, there weren't that many of me. I went to a private school at the age of 11. But before that, I was in public school. And there was about 40 people in every grade. And there was only one fat kid, and it was always me. And it was the same thing in private school. It's just that the classrooms were much smaller. We had less than 40 people. And it really wasn't until I got to college in 1977 that I saw really another overweight person. We were just starting in the 80s, you know, where, where America was getting a little bit heavier, and, and, and the trend had continued. And so I, in my family back then, it, let's see, my three brothers and sisters, they were not overweight. One was a little bit chunky, but my mom was morbidly obese. My dad was normal weight. And I was the fourth of four children growing up in Chicago, eating not so much the standard American diet, but I would call it the standard American Jewish diet, which really isn't that much healthier, you know, with the, right. the chopped liver with the schmaltz and the corned beef. And it, it wasn't that my mom was just, you know, making cocoa puffs every morning for breakfast, but the food was very high in fat and sugar and salt. I mean, it was delicious. She was an amazing cook, as was my grandmother. 
but as Dr. Colin Campbell says, the genes loaded the gun. I was predisposed by having, you know, one parent that was morbidly obese and my mother's, both of her parents were, were obese and, you know, the, the diet didn't help. So, you know, I, I mean, I loved the food my mom made. There was always dessert at every meal. That was my favorite thing. However, it wasn't so great that my father would say, you have to clean your plate. You know, there's children starving in these other countries. And if we had more food on our plate and we couldn't finish it, he would make us finish it saying that, you know, you can't waste food. You got big eyes, you got to finish. So, no, the, the habits weren't ingrained at a young age to really listen to your cues that, hey, I'm full, you know, but that was the only way to get dessert was to finish your plate. And I just wanted dessert, not understanding back then I was a sugar addict or a food addict, whatever word you want to use, things like that. And exercise wasn't modeled back then from my family members. So I, I didn't learn that habit either. So that, that's what happened. I was the only fat kid that I knew in the 60s. And you mean that way in the 70s and 80s, 90s and 2000s? And then finally, uh, shortly after my 50th birthday over 10 years ago, when I broke my knee and had to go in a wheelchair and I was so fat that I couldn't even you know, take care of my knees, I couldn't go to the bathroom. That's when I said, this is it. I can't live like this. I'm not going to be a burden to my husband. This is embarrassing. And people will say things like, oh, you weren't that fat because 50 pounds heavier is what everybody looks like now. But that is obese. And it's sad. That, you know, not to shame people or blame them for being overweight. I was my whole life, but it is not okay. It is not okay for your health. I have learned from over 150 doctors now that I've interviewed for a summit I host that's called The Truth About Weight Loss, that there is a risk to being overweight. It's not just, it's just a visual thing. It is, you are at risk for 13 different kinds of cancers that you're not at risk for when you don't have this extra adiposity. So it's really about health. When you realize that what you do for health also will benefit you in the weight loss arena and you will feel better and you will look better and you will sleep better, I think it's really important to get the message out that, yes, you're still a great person. We love you with the excess weight, but you are not going to live your best life, feel your best, and actually live the longest and be the healthiest when you are carrying extra weight. Right. A hundred percent. I mean, that's uh, you've been on a fantastic journey. And it's and struggling for forty years is no short amount of time. And I guess I'm just, you know, really curious that wheelchair moment that you had, you know, when you're in your early forties. Is that right? When you no, it was it was right. It was just a couple weeks before my fiftieth birthday. So it was ten and a half years ago when I went to the emergency room. I slipped on a wet floor. Like it wasn't it was wasn't one of one of those scams. They really did mop the floor and not put the sign up. I didn't see it. Was all caught on video camera. I went to the emergency room. Had a broken. It was a bad break too. And so they gave me crutches and I was too fat to use them. And then he gave me a walker and I was too fat to use them. So I was in a wheelchair for four months and it was humiliating. And I was living in an apartment that was not wheelchair friendly. I mean, I could not even go to the toilet myself. And, you know, we couldn't afford like nursing care. And it's just, for me, it was embarrassing. And I didn't, that's not how I wanted to live my life. Sometimes maybe when you're 90 or a hundred, you expect that, but not at 50, you know? Totally. Yeah, I often think about that and have this conversation like, do you, does somebody need a rock bottom moment? Because we both know that losing weight is one thing, losing weight and keeping it off is another thing. And I know you've tried many diets in your life. You know, not everyone gets to have that rock bottom moment, right? It sounds like your rock bottom moment where you slipped and fell, that really set you on a path of like, oh gosh, I'm not going to live like this. It's embarrassing. It's not going to be my life. And that propelled you forward into really making a big change because you, I mean, you were you were vegan for decades before that and still struggling with your weight. So 
Would you say that was the moment that really changed everything for you? Absolutely. And I think you're right, Mordecai, that most people that are addicts need a rock bottom moment to change because otherwise what, there's no impetus and some people will never change. And that's sad, but it, it just, it is the way it is. But I think those rock bottom moments are, you know, my sister says, come to Jesus moments, depending on what your, what your faith is. You know, they're very powerful because that's, that's a lot of times, like even in NA, that's when people hit their knees and pray to God for the first time. Like, you know, I can't live like this anymore. So, you know, people get comfortable being uncomfortable, you know what I mean? And, and they get used to it and they don't realize until they feel better, how much better they can feel. And yeah, I just, I did not like being in a wheelchair. I, because that's not how I wanted. I don't want people taking care of me. You know, I just, it's not something that I enjoy and want to be self-sufficient till, till the day I die. And, and I, I felt like the writing was on the wall if I didn't do something then. And so, you know, when I got out of the wheelchair, I had actually gained weight because, you know, you don't really get a lot of exercise in a wheelchair. And then it was even worse because when I went back to work, I was a pastry chef, which by the way, is not a good job for a food addict, yeah. whether you're vegan or not. That makes things a little tougher. That's like having the fox guard the proverbial hen house. But I, you know, I would work long hours and I couldn't even stand because the left knee was so, it was so deranged internally and it would get swollen to double the size of the right knee after my shift. And I went to, I had three consults orthopedically and about, you know, and they were saying, well, you know, we should probably do surgery. And I am so afraid of general anesthesia having almost died from an allergic reaction when I was 19 that I did, they wouldn't do it under local or any other means. And so I said, you know, I basically said, well, I'll do anything not to have an operation. And the doctor said, well, have you ever thought about losing weight? Because do you know that every pound you're overweight is five additional pounds of pressure to your knee? And I wanted to, part of me wanted to smack him and say, no, you know, it never crossed my mind. That, but I thought about it. And then when I got serious, I went to the True North Health Center where they really explained to me why people are overweight, what to do about it. I did what Dr. Goldhammer and Dr. Lyle and Dr. McDougall had been saying for years, but not fully understanding it. And I'm telling you, the weight melted off. I didn't have to starve myself. I didn't have to weigh and measure my food or count calories, carbs, or points. And this was, like you say, over eight years ago, and I've been happier and healthier and more productive than I ever have in my life. And I, I want this for everybody, but I realize now it's simple. The, the idea of it is simple. It's just not easy because there's so many factors that are involved in a person's journey. But I do think it's doable. As hard as it is, I have seen so many success stories, as have you, you're one yourself, that if, if this is really a priority for people, it, it is doable. That's interesting that you bring up the priority thing. You mentioned, you know, you mentioned this in your book, actually, how people just need to be committed. If you're committed to it, if you have the commitment, then you can figure it out. Then it becomes simple. But if you're focused on, you know, the opportunities and the obstacles and not willing to make it, you make it so, right, then it's actually quite challenging without the commitment. Commitment is one of my favorite words. And I just interviewed Marco Borges who was a Beyonce's trainer. And, and that's what he said, you know, commitment, consistency, these are things that you really have to have in place. 100%. So I want to take us back to knowing what you know now, right? You know, after all these years of losing, losing the weight and keeping it off, what was causing you at, you know, five, six, seven years old, what kind of traumas were you dealing with looking back that you've obviously um, have done a lot of work on to clear up, but what was causing you to struggle with your weight? I had a father who was kicked in the head by a horse and had some brain damage and he became violent. And yes, I did have a traumatic childhood, but I honestly don't believe that that is the reason I became obese. 
it was 100% the food. We were eating so many processed foods, which I don't believe are good for anyone. Even though I'm vegan and I would prefer people to lean that way, processed food is not good for anyone. And that is really when the processed food industry was exploding, was like in the 60s. We were getting things like tang and space food sticks and Pop-Tarts and all these things, which were really for convenience, but they're not food. And that was what I was eating so many of my calories from and not eating healthy whole foods like fruits and vegetables. I think that even with the trauma that I sustained, had there been a different landscape and a different environment, you remember we, we had this cabinet. And I actually had to get a step stool to get to it. It wasn't like it was easy for me to get the treats. It was really high. And I had to get this, I was too little. I had to get this step stool and then climb on the counter and on the stove. There was this cabinet, all kinds of things that I don't even consider food anymore, like Lucky Charms and, and, you know, and Chips Ahoy cookies. And it was Chicago. So instead of Lay's potato chips, it was Jay's potato chips. And I had access to that cabinet. And I'll tell you, if I had access instead to just fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, those kind of things, which we did have, I think it would have been a different outcome. I completely, completely agree. You know, I grew up in a similar environment, right? My my mom was like great baker. Cookies and cakes were just about everywhere. Also a very Jewish traditional home with all the pastries and, you know, all the challah breads and everything else you can imagine. So I completely agree that, you know, our conditioning and environment play a really big role in our ability to stay healthy as, as a youngster. But I do believe also the trauma plays a role in the addictive tendencies that we develop over time. And I know you do as well. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, the term, you know, food addict gets thrown around pretty loosely. And, you know, not, not everyone's got a good understanding of food addiction, um, like I believe you do. I mean, can you just share a bit about your perspective on what food addiction is and who has it and who doesn't? I think that it, first of all, I think it exists on a spectrum, right? So, you know, even what, like if you take something like alcoholism, pe- many people know alcoholics and some are what we would call drunks, like the ones that you see on Skid Row, where literally that's all they do is sit there and look to get drunk all day. And then there's other people that have alcoholism that can hold up a job and have a family and not drink all day. But guess what they do as soon as they get home until they go to bed, they drink. So I think it, it varies in intensity and some people are more susceptible to it and vulnerable to to the disease of addiction. And I also think, well, a lot of times what's going on in a person's life can make a person more or less vulnerable. So like, for example, if I were at a, at a place like Rancho La Puerta, where I teach this spot in Mexico, and I am meditating every day and hiking in the Kachuma Mountains and doing self-care, and then they bring the pastry cart after dinner, it was like, whatever, you know, I don't need it. I've, I'm going to have berries, right? But if I'm in a situation where I have a, you know, I'm not in a good marriage and I don't like my job and I'm stressed and, the, and every minute of my time is engaged, then forget it. You know, it's like, I'm going to do that because all eating, eating any food stimulates the production of a neurotransmitter called dopamine in the brain. This is the pleasure chemical. Food and sex stimulate the production of dopamine. But these highly processed, highly caloric, high fat foods stimulate even more of them. And so what I think it is, is not so much that people are addicted to potato chips, is that people get addicted to this artificial stimulation of dopamine in the brain. It feels good and they want more. So even if they haven't had a trauma, if they're exposed to these chemicals, and I call them chemicals because McDonald's isn't food, it's chemicals, it's a science project, you get a blast of dopamine so much higher from eating these foods that ever existed in nature that you actually, you know, you become, you crave them, you, it, 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 you just want them more and more and more. 
And I think the fact that I was exposed to them at such a very young age, you know, I remember my mom giving me, I don't know why, and I wish she was alive to ask her, but she would drink coffee in the morning with cream and sugar and she would let me sip from her cup. And it's like, you don't give a kid that. They're four years old. The caffeine's addictive. You know, the dairy's addictive. The sugar's addictive, things like that. But again, I think that people have uh, different vulnerabilities. But the way I de- define food addiction or any addiction is, I think, the inability to stop doing something. Or if you stop doing it, it causes a great deal of discomfort where you can't stop thinking about it or when you're going to get your next fix. I have a quiz in my book, but it, it's different for different people. It's that moment, you know, that moment where you feel like you're about to lose control and you're about to give in to the actual craving. Like you're thinking about it, you're playing it all out in your mind, and then all of a sudden you just go for it. And I think that's the moment that would define to me, right, not a control behavior, right? You're sitting there thinking about something and you know you don't want to have it and you do it anyways. Exactly. And, and how much pain and suffering is it causing you too, right? That also varies on a spectrum. I think that some, for some people, even the thought of not having whatever it is every day, for me, it was a Coke Slurpee, causes them so much discomfort and anxiety that they can never even think about a life without these substances. You know, some of the food addiction experts that I've interviewed, like Dr. Vera Tarman, say it's a terrible name for a disease because you technically can't be addicted to food or eating. But I feel like you can be addicted to particular food-like substances, like sugars and flowers that really aren't food, right? And she likes to look at it as more like a dopamine deficiency disorder, because that sounds kind of edgy and cool. It's like, you know, it's not embarrassing. People, yeah, people don't like the word addict, and they don't like to admit that they're suffering from an addiction. And so I think it needs some rebranding so that people can understand that there's really nothing wrong with them. The truth is, is we are designed to always seek the most calorically dense foods in any environment, whether we've had trauma or not. This is just biology. There's a wonderful book called The Pleasure Trap that explains that our ancestors lived in a world of scarcity. And now we live in a world where it's like everybody has a 7-Eleven in their glove compartment, in their house. And that in order to, to survive you know, in the Stone Age and moving forward from the Stone Age, we always sought the most calorically concentrated foods. But those foods didn't exist that are, that are there now. There wasn't bread and oil and cheese. There, were, there weren't any processed foods. So the worst and it's not bad, but the, the, the most calorically concentrated foods our ancestors could get into were nuts occasionally that were very calorically dense, but only available for a short time, very difficult to open. And so we evolved at what they call an average calorie density of about 700 calories a pound. Our ancestors did eat some animal products that were higher, but mostly they were gatherers existing on fruits and roots and shoots and tubers, which were less than 700 calories a pound. And so now The average calorie density of what people eat is just so high from things like bread and flour and alcohol and all these processed foods. And so I think that is the biggest problem. But the addiction isn't to whole natural food. I'm sorry, but nobody has ever started an organization called Arugula Anonymous. You do not get addicted to whole foods in their whole food form, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes. It's always the processed foods. And the thing is, is I think that's something that everybody, except for the processed food industry, can agree on. And that's what I like. Every dietary style that is very, that people go to and that has been successful for weight loss, even ones I don't agree with, all shun processed food. And my, my message from my very first book on process is, look, you know, whether you eat meat or not, nobody is supposed to eat processed food. And while it's true, there's probably a few people, and I'd say maybe 10% or less of our population, that can eat this crap and not feel like they're addicted, and not look overweight, that doesn't mean that they're healthy. Nobody should be eating processed food, period. 
There shouldn't be a cheat day because you d- you aren't supposed to eat this food. It's not food. I couldn't agree with you more on on, on so many of those points. And I'm really curious about there, there's one point where I, I do I do want to interject here. I you know for me like I have this thing where I call the 48 hour rule, and that means that I can plan out anything I want to eat within 48 hours. If I decided that I want to have ice cream, even though it may be the, the vegan version with you know some type of sugar. I'm going to have it within 48 hours. I actually did this a year and a half ago um, for my birthday. I was going to have ice cream. I planned it 48 hours exactly where I wanted it. This ice cream shop, Van Loon in Brooklyn, makes great artisan ice cream. And I remember, like, I went through a, a lot of withdrawals afterwards, but because it was planned and didn't have the emotional reactiveness, it was actually very different than if I was sitting on the couch and feeling an emotion that I didn't really enjoy feeling and was avoiding feeling the emotion. So I walked to the freezer and took out ice cream, right? So I think there's two different types of behaviors there. And I do believe this, you know, I, I mean, in your, in your case, it sounds like your complete abstinence, you don't want to have it at all, right? And I'm wondering, does that actually make you think about pastime foods that you, that you enjoy? Do you, do you want those things more? Do the cravings become stronger? Because in my, in my universe and what I, when I coach people after they lose their weight, I'm like, all right, if you ever want to, if you ever want to celebrate, you know, your Thanksgiving dinner, and you want to have pumpkin pie, you know, whatever it is that you know your, your traditional family celebrates with, your, whatever you eat dinner with, that's okay, right? That's okay to do that as long as it's a scheduled and you define how much of that you're going to have. So it's very specific, and as long as your commitment is strong and you're not you're not in a risky situation, it's okay. So I'm curious how that feels for you. And it's a couple of things that I want to address on that. So first of all, I think that everyone should do what works for them. We're all at the end of the day, individuals, right? And so I think your approach could work for some people. And this is going to depend on how vulnerable they are to the effects of these substances, number one. Now, number two, in my world, because I am a trained chef, I was a pastry chef, anything that you, not you, Mordecai, but people could think of, I can do in a healthy form without sugar or flour. I just can't. I, this is my gift. I can make anything, whether it's pumpkin pie or ice cream, not only vegan, but without sugar, oil, flour, salt, and make it unbelievably delicious so that it would be less triggering for people that have the vulnerability to these substances. But I think when you say planning for it, I think that's brilliant because you're not planning a cheat day, you're planning a treat day, which is completely different. I like phrasing it that way. And this is the thing about abstinence is it always works, but not everyone is going to be able to do it. And so one of the things I've noticed, because as you know, everybody can lose weight, really they can, whatever diet, anytime you lower the amount of calories that you expend, you will lose weight. The biggest problem comes with the maintenance because something like over 90% of the people that lose weight gain it all back within two years. So what I have noticed is the biggest problem is that they eat differently when they're losing weight than when they're maintaining the weight. So I would say if somebody wants to have these treats, they should probably figure out a way to do it during the weight loss process to see if this is something they can do. Because I always feel like you need to lose weight the way you plan on living your life. And so what a lot of times will happen is people will avoid some of these high calorie things like whatever it is, like maybe it's peanut butter or maybe it's alcohol, and then they lose weight and they try to reintroduce them and they actually gain the weight back because I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of metabolic compensation. Some doctors call it calorie penalty or metabolic disadvantage. I love this summit that I host every year called The Truth About Weight Loss because I interview so many medical doctors that are 
board certified in obesity medicine, and I've learned about this, that when you lose weight, your metabolism goes down. It's just a fact. So it's, it's not fair. It's almost like you're being punished for having been overweight. But to give you an example, let's say that you lost weight and let's say your, your resting metabolic rate was something like 2000 calories a day and you lost weight and now you need 1800 calories a day. The problem is, is you might have lost 20% of your, 10% of your body weight, but your metabolism goes down 20%. Now, the theory is, is that in the Stone Age, or is we, nobody was overweight in, throughout evolution up until we started processing food and things like that, is that if you started losing weight because you were too thin, which could have happened when our ancestors couldn't find enough food, the metabolism slowed so that you wouldn't die. Unfortunately, we, our metabolism hasn't evolved. So when people lose weight, their metabolism goes down more than if they hadn't lost weight. And it's unfair. Some doctors think it takes years and some thinks you never, you never gain it back. And so that's what happens is when you lose weight, you actually need fewer calories. And so you need to, and, and, and part of it is just simple math, but part of it is this thing called metabolic compensation, also known as calorie penalty. And so I would tell people as far as whether or not they can be absent, a lot of people say, well, I'm afraid if I don't have X, Y, Z, I'll crave it more. That's only true if you're an addict. And I'll give you a, a couple examples of that. My husband has always been slender. It doesn't matter what he eats, whether it's healthy or crap, his weight is always going to be slender. And he developed, uh, well, he didn't develop it. It turned out he had a congenital heart defect, but it was not diagnosed until he was in his 40s. And the doctor had written on a prescription pad, you must now avoid all caffeine, coffee, alcohol, and chocolate. And these were things that he enjoyed from time to time, especially at a wedding or a bar mitzvah. And he looked at the prescription and he says, oh, okay, that was it. There was no grieving. There was like, oh my God, because he's not an addict. So I think that to the degree that you feel like, oh my God, I can't live without this, that, that is to the degree that you're with, with, you know, an addict. Like, so if I said to you, Mordecai, I can promise you, you'll be slender. You'll never get cancer or heart disease, but you can never eat okra again. Would you then crave okra? Be honest. I mean, I, I've never heard that. So, but when it comes to all these hyperpalatable hedonic foods, people are like, oh yeah. So I think if it works for the person, I know for me, I'm very, very susceptible to even the smallest amounts of these things. And I know that because one time I bought the wrong almond milk or my husband bought it and I didn't read the label and it was the one with sugar. And I remember like, what is going on? I am having cravings. I want all this stuff. And I looked at the label, by the way, looks exactly the same. Now I make my own uh, non-dairy milk. So it depends. You know, there's people that could go to the dentist for a procedure and swish the mouthwash that had some kind of sugar, artificial sweetener, and that can start craving. So I think at the end of the day, it's not a one size fits all. I think food addiction and, and, and is a one size fits most, but you have to know yourself. You know what I'm saying? Because I've known people and that have had one, I'm not kidding a fun size Snickers on Halloween. And the next thing you know, they're on dialysis because it, they got so out of control. So I have seen the worst of the worst. So the thing is, is just do these experiments. I always think it's a good idea to do an experiment like the pumpkin pie experiment you're talking about, but do it very responsibly so that you have some tools that if for you, it didn't work, you can get back on track quickly and not get derailed like people that I have seen that literally, you know, there's an old saying, one drink, one drunk, one bite. Sometimes that is enough to send people on tailspin. So you have to know yourself is what I'm saying. My ice cream store did not end well. That night I actually, I, I went to sleep 
And I remember grinding my teeth so hard, I en ended up cracking a tooth and I had to go to get like a, a crown replaced, which cost like 1500 bucks. I was like, that ice cream was not worth 1500 bucks. It wasn't that good. I mean, the first bite definitely reminded me of the ice cream I used to eat 10 years ago, but that was not, that was not worth that feeling of like being possessed, like you're describing when you had the milk. That's the way I felt. My, my brain just felt like it was completely overtaken by that, those cravings and sensations. And I immediately leaving the ice cream shop wanted pizza. And like it brought back that habit pattern in my mind of, you know, for two decades, just eating those types of foods, right? Um, highly palatable foods. And, um, it's different for everybody. You know, also, I think, you know, people are on different dietary programs. If people aren't loving the food they're eating, they're going to be more prone to wanting to do these experiments. Everything I eat is delicious. Every day I wake up thinking, oh my God, I get to eat this sweet potato. I get to eat this pumpkin pie. Actually, I just made a pumpkin pie made, and it's made out of dates and it's made out of pumpkin. And it's in, actually not very many dates comparatively, but there's no processed sugar. There's no flour. There's there's some rolled oats in it. It's not going to work for everybody, but I can have a little square of that. I, because see, it's like you have to know what works for you. But also, if you are on a dietary plan that you don't like, you're going to always want to go off the plan. You know, so that's why you have to find the one that you really truly enjoy. And I enjoy my food so much that these things don't cross my mind unless I'm in a situation where somebody else is eating and I'm like, oh boy, that looks kind of good. But I think I know from the one slip that I had and from working with so many clients, the story in general doesn't ever have a happy ending. It's interesting that you can eat one square of date pie and is it date pie? Is that what it is? It's a little pie and it's, and like I say, I try not to use too many dates and I can have a little square, but it took me years. Believe me, the first that while I was losing weight, I wasn't doing any treats. And many years later, it took many years out for, I guess, my brain to, to become the way it is now, calm and for me to do that. And, and I don't venture out like too crazy. Like I'm not going to do like chocolate or anything like that. Like that would just be a tremendous trigger. You have to know your triggers. Dates is one of mine. So it's kind of funny that you can actually eat dates. If I have one date, it's like, it sets me off. It's like, it's like eating cane sugar. There's no, like eating pure sugar. I stay away from dates, but you know what also does it for me is, is, is sweet potatoes. I know you eat a lot of sweet potatoes. And I remember when we spoke about this once and you're like, I eat sweet potatoes all the time. Like, if I eat one, like not, not so much a sweet potato, for sure, white potato, but oriental sweet potatoes. Oh yeah, those are, those are like cake. But you know, you might be able to eat something like butternut squash. Yes, butternut squash, kombucha squash. Yeah. The yellow spaghetti squash. I mean, this time of year, those, those are all amazing. But see, that's brilliant. And I, I recommend everybody, don't copy somebody else exactly. Find out what works for you. For me, it's the nut butters. Like, you give me tahini or peanut butter, and I'm like, oh my God. I, so my brain just starts lighting up. I think everybody's different. But we only got here because we've peeled away so far from eating Snickers and pizza and ice cream. Because when you're eating those foods, your body's desensitized. You, can't, you don't know the difference. You don't know if you're coming or going. I mean, back in the day when I would eat like that, I was having probably six or eight coffees a day. So it was like, you, know, you don't know if you're up or down. You don't know what's causing it. But when you're eating really clean and you're not eating, you know, everything's unprocessed like you eat, it's very easy for you to be like, oh, I had too many dates today. I'm going to be feeling a little bit more, you know, I'm right now I feel really energetic and I feel, you know, a little bit, you know, so it's like you kind of have to, you have to really be in tune with the way your food is making you feel. And it's interesting because I know you talk about this in your book about the idea that you used to hate vegetables growing up. You know, I used to hate vegetables growing up. Oh my God, I didn't eat them. I didn't eat them till I was 43. And the thing that's so brilliant, and this is the thing 
that I, I've, I learned is that vegetables, especially greens, those dark green leafy and the cruciferous ones, have a compound in them called thylakoids that actually fight cravings for sugar. They turn off the hunger switch. And so the more vegetables you eat, that is how you fight sugar addiction and food addiction is by eating as many vegetables as you can flood your system with. That's why I don't like these weighing and measuring programs because they tell people to eat seven ounces of vegetables. No, eat two pounds of vegetables because those thylakoids, which you can't get in pill form, just they do something to your brain that just makes you not crave sugar. So when I say I eat a little small square of a dessert now, that's after eating a huge salad with a pound of vegetables in it. You know what I'm saying? I don't. I would never eat something like that on an empty stomach or first. I don't even eat fruit first. Fruit, anything sweet is the treat. And that doesn't even mean I have it every day. And, and a lot of the desserts quote that I make don't even have dates at all. This is, I, the pumpkin pie came to mind because you had mentioned it and it's the newest thing that I've made. But a lot of times I don't even want anything sweet because I really tend to crave savory now. It's crazy how much how big of an impression food leaves on you. Like if you see someone eating it, you know, before I saw someone, I think I was on Facebook and I saw somebody eating like a piece of pizza and immediately I saw my brain starting to think about pizza. And it's amazing how much awareness you need to have to know how, how much you can get triggered by certain foods. If you are struggling with a food addiction, if other people in your home have no problem with chocolate bars and ice cream and breads and you struggle with you know, you're sensitive to anything that's refined or sugar, flour, chocolate, pastries, all of those things. How do you recommend somebody deal with that? Like, how do you navigate that world when everybody else wants to eat a certain way? They have to eat food. How do you navigate that? So that is a great question. And I have had a saying now for over 10 years, if it's in your house, it's in your mouth. And it's not a question of if you will eat it, only when. I often use an analogy in a family that if you had one child that was in a wheelchair and you lived in a house with steps in front, you would probably get a wheelchair ramp so that that child could easily come in and out. You wouldn't say to that child, well, what's the matter with you? Everybody else in the family can walk down these steps. You just have to figure it out. No, you always defer to the one that has the problem. And food addiction is a disease and people have to understand it as such and they need education. Now, sometimes people are just not understanding just because they have very disagreeable personalities, whatever. But think about it. If you were an alcoholic and got out of Betty Ford rehab, and then we said, okay, good luck, but this is the only job you can have now working in a bar. How long do you think you'd be able to maintain sobriety? If you are a food addict or sensitive to the effects of refined carbohydrates like sugars and flours, How successful do you think you're going to be if they're in your house and other people around you are eating them and they're making toast and smearing peanut butter on them? Everyone I've ever interviewed in this space says that the environment is pretty much the number one predictor of your success and that we should work harder on our environment than we do ourselves. Now, how you're going to do that is up to you. You might need counseling with somebody like Dr. Doug Lyle who can help navigate the personalities of the people in the household to figure out a workable solution. If those foods are in your house, it's going to be much harder to recover, to lose weight, and to not eat them because you are genetically hardwired to always eat the most concentrated source of calories in your environment. That's just the way we're designed. And they will always call to you. Now, there's an interim solution where you can ask the people to maybe put them in a locked refrigerator or a locked safe. Thing is, you're going to know they're there. And as long as they're there, you're going to crave them. So the best thing would be to work with the family as a system 
explain that you love them and you want to be there for a long time to take care of them, but you can't have these foods in the house. They can eat whatever they want, but please eat them outside of the home. And my understanding is a truly loving family member will support someone in recovery, but these are hard conversations to have, especially because often the person that suffers from the addiction is often an agreeable people pleaser. They feel a lot of shame for having this disease and realize it's a disease. It's not your fault any more than if you had asthma. Would it be your fault? Or blue eyes, would it be your fault? This is genetic. And there's got to be a way that we can, through podcasts like this, increase awareness so that the people that don't suffer from it understand it. I don't have a problem with alcohol. I was lucky that the first time I tried it, I got violently ill and ended up hospital. So, But there are people that do, legitimately. And even though I don't understand what it's like to be an alcoholic or addicted to alcohol, I would never say to my friend who is a recovering alcoholic, what's the matter with you? Can't you just have one drink and push yourself away from the bar? You'd never say that. And you would never then say, oh, look, I made this margarita just for you. Why can't you have a sip? But people that don't understand this or suffer from it, they do this all the time. They're food bullies. And sometimes they're food addicts themselves. And I understand that because in a situation where one person is trying to recover, a lot of times the person living in the household with the food addict is a food addict themselves, but they're in denial. And the thought of never having these foods in the house creates a lot of anxiety and stress for them. So sometimes that's at play. But I'll tell you something. There's an old saying in AA, if you hang around a barbershop long enough, it's just a matter of time till you get a haircut. And that's the same thing with these highly processed, hedonic, hyperpalatable foods that we were never designed to eat in the first place. If it's in your house, it's in your mouth. You may be able to use some willpower and white knuckling for a little bit not to eat them. But I'll tell you, the minute you have a bad day or are hungry, it's going to be in your mouth. I I have never seen an exception yet to this rule. I want to talk about preparation. Actually, before we talk about preparation, social pressure. Your friends are going out to a restaurant and you're worried because you know that everyone's going to be eating foods that are going to maybe triggering for you. Not everyone, but likely people will be eating foods that are triggering. How do you recommend someone deal with that? I think the social aspect of this is probably the hardest part because if we all were hermits living in a clean environment, none of us would be overweight or have any food addictions. And how a person handles this is really going to depend on their personality. So I don't go to restaurants. I do other things with friends. And a lot of people think, well, I'm weird and I'm no fun, but I just don't. You see, again, I think of myself as the alcoholic. I'm not going to go to the bar. And when I go to these restaurants or when I did in the past, even the vegan ones, it's too triggering because what's the first thing I see when I walk in is a bakery cake and a bakery case with all the stuff that I used to eat. And so even though at home I might have steamed vegetables and brown rice and have a delicious meal. When I get that at the restaurant and everybody else is eating vegan pizza and vegan lasagna and vegan hostess cupcakes, all of a sudden I don't enjoy my food so much. So again, it's the environment. For me, it doesn't work. So what might work for other people is to have that difficult conversation with the friend saying, hey, can we do something else? Can we go for a hike? Can we go you know, do some kind of activity? Or if we have to eat food, can, can you come to my house and eat my food? I, I don't have the answer. It's going to depend on the person. But just make sure you don't go overly hungry because if you're overly hungry in that setting, you're definitely going to overeat. It's a tough one, but maybe you can have some input and pick a, you know what I find is a really good type of restaurant for these cases. And this is good because it, 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 vegetarians and vegans and everybody can eat, carnivores can eat there. 
is uh, they have these restaurants. They're like bowl type restaurants, B-O-W-L. And some of them are pokey or poke bowls where, and the food is pretty clean, by the way, and you see it all, it's out in front of you and everybody customizes their bowl. You can actually eat a pretty healthy meal. Like I'll bring my own salad dressing on the side, but I don't see anything really triggering at those restaurants because it's not like a bunch of pasta and bread on the table and, a, and they don't even have desserts generally at those restaurants. So people can eat pretty clean. Those that eat animal protein can get that, but they always seem to have lots of vegetables and fruit options. And this customization of the bowl, I think it's brilliant because if I was forced to go to a restaurant with friends, that's what I would do. But the th- nice thing about the pandemic is people weren't eating at restaurants. And guess what was happening? People that said they could never lose weight for the first time are losing weight. I want you to talk a little bit about preparation, right? I know you have a saying that when you go make it, when you make a flight, you check out which airport is going to have the healthiest food bar um, or the salad bar. So you can, I mean, that's, that's pretty extreme. I mean, that's, and I, I love the commitment that you have. I have, I have a lot of similar habits that I've created over the years. I'm, I'm really curious, what are some of the other things that you do to stay prepared for the unknown? Yeah. So one of the things I'm a big fan of, and I'm a big fan of this, even for people that don't need to lose weight or have food addictions in life is something called batch cooking. Because if you're not prepared, then you're going to have to just accept whatever is going on, you know? And, and I don't think it's that extreme to just check which airport is going to have the better food because you're in charge of your flights these days. There's always options. You know, a lot of times when there's connections, you don't get straight flights anymore, like in the old days. And so I also do that just based on what city, if I'm going to get stuck in a city, I'll tell you, I'd rather be stuck in Las Vegas where I know people than in say Tucson, where I don't know anybody, for example. So I think preparation always trumps motivation. And so if you have healthy food ready, and if that's all you have ready, guess what? When you're hungry, you're going to eat it. The problem is, is people have so much unhealthy food ready also at the same time or, or accessible. And so I take my food with me, whether I'm going to a restaurant or a wedding, I, even if I don't take it in necessarily, I always carry a cooler. I always have my food with me. And then I don't have to ever compromise and eat something that's off plan or that I don't like. I'm very lucky. I think that I have a few food allergies, one of them black pepper. And there's a lot of things I can't eat that people make or that restaurant food has. So I think it's like sort of that analogy that you hear about the airplane that when they experience a drop in cabin pressure, a mask will drop and that we're supposed to put our mask on even before we put it on our child. I believe that self-care is healthcare. And so I don't think it's selfish or wrong to take care of myself just like, you know, I would a baby. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give my baby something that they're allergic to. I would always have what that baby needs. And so I just always have healthy food ready in my refrigerator, in my freezer, in my cooler. And of course, at first it was a little weird and there was a learning curve, but it's just the way I live now. And it's, it's not that hard, especially because I prepared everything. It's not hard when you're prepared. It's really, that's like with everything, things are only hard if you're not prepared. Yeah. And I like what you mentioned earlier about, it's an act of self-love to be able to communicate your needs, right? It's an act of self-love to have to navigate going to a certain restaurant, you know, you can eat something healthy at or going to a dinner party and bring and bringing a healthy dish for everyone to enjoy. It's really, it, it's, it helps you create boundaries. That's why the commitment is so important because once you made the commitment to yourself, then you're able to start having these more challenging conversations and each, in each conversation is an opportunity. Like you said, you figure it out. It's a process and you don't become amazing at this overnight navigating social situations. But 
we both know that that's where the real payoff is. Because once you start doing that, you're really addressing the inner wounds, the inner child, and and the things that um, the areas you haven't really attended to as as much as 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 you need it. So I, I love that. I love the preparation and and the, and the commitment to your work. I'd like to tell people that. I think there's always hope that even if you have suffered for a very long time and feel like you have failed, in my opinion, the only way you can really fail is to just give up because every failure is an opportunity for learning what didn't work. I mean, I guess you could say that Benjamin Franklin and Alexander Graham Bell were failures because a lot of their inventions took hundreds of tries to work. I would like to tell people not to give up, but I think you need to find what a lot of the people call the why, the why that makes you cry. Because if you're just doing this to fit into a wedding dress that you're going to somebody's wedding or your high school reunion, it's probably not going to stick. You need to find some real deep reasons why you want to lose weight besides just visually wanting to look better. You need to think about your health, maybe It's you have children and you want to be there for their wedding or grandchildren. You want to be able to play with them and get up and down off the floor. So you really need to look within yourself and find that why that makes you cry. And I think when you have a really deep, compelling reason, other than just, I want to fit into a dress, I think it makes it a lot easier. And I think you really want to surround yourself with like-minded people. Like that whole restaurant thing, I'm thinking, well, my friends would never put me through that. My friends know about my struggles. And they would never suggest a restaurant that I'd be triggered. And then you have to wonder, are these people really your friends? And the people in your household, do they really love you if they're torturing you with these foods? So sometimes you just have to look at your relationships. It's not always easy, but I got to tell you, it's worth it. I have never met a person who has lost weight and recovered from food addiction that said it wasn't worth it. You And you are worth it. You are worth it. So what would you tell yourself if if you were just getting started out today? and you are giving yourself advice eight years ago, what would you say to yourself? I would say to myself, if what I'm doing isn't sustainable, it won't be permanent. And I think that is what I have learned from all the clients I've worked with and myself at my past dietary failures, that if it's not sustainable, it won't be permanent. So whatever I am doing now to lose weight, I must enjoy it or I'll not be able to sustain it. And also I would say to myself, that what is most important is health. And when I eat in a manner that is going to support my health, my physical health, my mental health, my dental health, that is going to cause me to lose weight. So tell me, what's one area in your life where you're feeling really full right now? I would say right now it's in my career. Believe it or not, I'm a late bloomer at 60 and I am having the time of my life working right now since the pandemic, which my heart, of course, goes out to people that aren't working that have had problems from it. But what happened to me is I was making my living as a professional speaker and I was always traveling and going places. And because of the pandemic, I'm home and I found it allowed me to be so much more productive. I've I've gotten two books written during this time. But even more than that, I have started a daily live broadcast on YouTube. I've done 275 shows so far and I'm interviewing interesting people like you, doctors, chefs, things like that. And I find that I'm actually helping and reaching exponentially more people than when I would go to a conference where there was a hundred people. So I'm feeling very happy and gratified and fulfilled making this connection with people on a daily basis, doing what I love with actually out having to get on an airplane. Inspiring. What an inspiring answer. And congratulations on the on the next two books that you've written and can't I can't wait to check them out. Thank you. 
I highly recommend if you want more information about Jeff AJ, her, her latest book, The Secrets to Ultimate Weight Loss, has it goes much deeper in a lot of these topics. I highly recommend you checking that out. I really enjoyed it, especially some of your preparation and mindset mindset skills in there. So it's always great talking to you. I always learn something new when we have our conversations. And I just want to thank you again for coming on to the show and sharing your knowledge and wisdom with everyone listening. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure talking to you. That's it for us today, friends. Thanks for listening. Do you know someone who's struggling right now? If they could use some support, please share this episode with them. If you want to keep in touch, subscribe wherever you get your podcast or sign up to my weekly emails at feelingfull.com, where I unpack what I'm learning about weight loss and share ways we can all live healthier, more fulfilling lives. Take care, be well, and feel full.